1 Kings, the 19th chapter. This might be the last sermon, if not the last, I imagine it'll be the next to last sermon um, on the little series that I've been preaching about taking a stand and to kind of break the series of sermons down into three categories, pre-stand, before the stand, how the Lord dealt with Elijah and some of the things in Elijah's life, like being fed by the ravens uh, in the wilderness when he was hiding from Ahab, when he dealt with the widow at uh, Zarepta where she was uh, in the midst of a terrible drought that was brought on Israel to try to get them to turn and repent, and it didn't, it, they, it didn't take. They didn't repent from that. And his encounter with that widow where she uh, is about ready to die and her only son is about ready to die to, because they're going to starve to death, he meets her and not only does he sustain her, but she sustains him. And then we find that the Lord has dealt with Elijah and the fact that he proved to him that while you may feel alone uh, in the service of the Lord, you are not always alone and usually Uh, the people that are there and supporting and walking the same road you are, you may not even know who they are or that they're doing that. And he proved that to him by the governor Obadiah, who was uh, directly uh, up under the charge of King Ahab, who all this uh, competition was with. So uh, the Lord showed Elijah that you think you are alone, but I've got a guy up under the very nose of Ahab who is bringing all this distress on you. And this man is so faithful, Obadiah is so faithful that he is actually hiding the prophets of God that Ahab and his wife Jezebel are killing during this drought, possibly to try to flush Elijah out of his hiding place because they blamed him for the drought. And so those are some of the experiences that Elijah has before this great showdown. And then maybe the second stage, I guess you would say, would be the actual showdown itself. We talked about that and how Uh, The Lord sent fire from heaven and and swallowed up and burned up the altar that Elijah built and and, uh, drenched with water uh, compared to the uh, altar that the prophets of Baal built. And they spent all day long jumping up and down on it and screaming and cutting themselves to try to get Baal to answer them and consume the altar. And the competition was whichever altar gets consumed, whichever God shows up, we're going to let that be the God. Now, he's not trying necessarily to convince the prophets of Baal. He's trying to convince Israel who, had, who, who he has called to watch this great competition. And at the end of this great competition, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So the conclusion of that great competition was Baal is a nothing, Baal is a nobody, Baal doesn't exist. The Lord that we have forsaken and we have neglected, that is the one true living God. So, mission accomplished, right? Well, sort of. The third step, the third stage that we'll look at mostly today is the aftermath of that great competition. And the reason I've said all this before you over the last several weeks is because God's people are going to have to take stands for truth and light at some point in their life if they're worth their salt as a Christian. Especially in the world that we live in today, there's going to come a time when, and and we're rapidly getting there, where you're going to have to stand up and say, kill me or kill me not, but this is wrong. And this is something that we will not support. This is something that goes against God's standards. And when you do that, there's going to be some, uh, an aftermath of that. There's going to be some trouble that you're going to have to deal with. And so what you see and what we're going to look at today is the aftermath of Elijah's great stand. 
and it's something that we can all relate to and something we probably need to put in our pockets for the times that we do take stands. Now, you would think, or at least I would think, that if I were Elijah and I had been the person that God was using to orchestrate this great competition between Baal and the Lord, and I would have been the one that built the altar, and I would have been the one that had done all those things, and I would have seen the fire from uh, heaven come down and light this altar and consume it up. If I would have seen all of those things, I would, I would be feeling very spiritual, wouldn't you? I'd be feeling very high. I'd be on a mountaintop. And especially when you see all of Israel repenting and saying we've got it we've had it wrong and we've strayed and we've followed a false god and we're ready to come back to the lord i would be feeling bulletproof and what you see is maybe for a very brief moment elijah does feel that way but as far as men falling from the mountaintop i don't know of many people in the bible that fall from the mountaintop of courage and being in the right place and speaking truth with boldness to fall as quickly from that as Elijah does. Elijah loses, uh, his faith goes from great faith to almost unrecognizable faith very quickly. And what starts that, uh, that, that descent for Elijah <clears throat> is when Ahab goes back to Jezebel who apparently was not at this great competition. Elijah, uh, Ahab goes back to Jezebel and he says uh, in, in a very, you know, just the, when I read it, it just seems like he is a whiny, pouty little king who, who got shown up at this great competition. Nothing in his heart was really pricked about it. You know, nothing made him say, oh, you know, uh, I'm with Israel and, and the Lord, he is God. And we've got to get rid of everything that even represents Baal worship around here. He goes back and he tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done. <clears throat> and I told you last week, he doesn't go back to her and say, let me tell you what God has done. He says, let me tell you what Elijah has done. It's almost even in, even in his conversation with Jezebel, he refuses to give glory to God. And that's something that you'll see with the wicked. And I've told you many times over in Revelations that as the angels pour out the vials of wrath upon man in the last days, the Bible says that there were men that are scorched with the heat of the sun and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain they were in and they refused to repent and acknowledge God. Listen, the wicked are going to hold on to it. And Ahab refuses to acknowledge God. He blames Elijah. And he says, Elijah's done all this and Elijah's killed all our prophets and Elijah's been mean to me. You know, he's called me names. He's just, he's mocked me when we tried to call on the prophet Baal and he just kind of whines to Jezebel and Jezebel is just an evil, wicked woman. And it just burns her up and she is so <clears throat> scorned by this that she sends a message to Elijah and basically says, you've got 24 hours to live. I'm putting a 24-hour death warrant on you, and I'll have you, and I'm going to do to you what you did to the prophets within 24 hours. And for some reason, this great Elijah who stood in front of Ahab and 800-something prophets of the groves and of Baal stood before all of them as a single man, not shaken in the least. 
as bold as any man you can find in the Bible, for some reason, when he gets that message, it resonates with him in such a way that it brings up great fear inside of him and his faith just goes flat. You would think Elijah would say something like, you know, in, in today's term, like, bring it on. Bring it on. Have you not seen what my God can do? Have you not seen how I have proven to you that your God doesn't even exist and my God is the one and only true living God? Can you not see that, Jezebel? He'll deal with you in the same way that he dealt with your prophets. But he doesn't say that. He tucks his tail and he takes off running. And he hides. And we find <clears throat> where we left off last time, we find in verse 4 of 1 Kings 19, if you want to turn there, that's we'll, we'll, we'll start there. You'll find that he goes, well, in verse 3 it says, When he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, which was under the reign and dominion of Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat, which was a good king and in which in that dominion Elijah would be safe. I think it's important to remember that. Elijah flees to a place where, where really he's safe. Jezebel and whatever armies that she wants to bring against Elijah, once they got to Beersheba, they're going to have, they're, they're outside of their dominion. They're going to have to fight against uh, the dominion of the kingdom of Jehoshaphat. So Elijah's in a safe place. But <clears throat> it says, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness alone. He left his servant at Beersheba. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. We talked about that last time. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, here you have a man that is, uh, the Bible tells us that he's fearful. He's running. Now, I want you to ask, I, wanna, I want you to be thinking, why in the world would he go from a place that he is safe further into the wilderness? And my take on that is because he has a specific destination in mind. He's not looking just to go into Beersheba and just to go into the wilderness. I think he is going to a certain place, and we'll find that here in just a minute. But he goes into the wilderness, and he is so distraught over all of this, and I think he's convicted I think he's convicted because he did not stand up to Jezebel in a very bold way. And I think he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's pricked in his heart because he's running and he's afraid. And he says, I'm not any better than my father. He said, Lord, take my life from me. And he's ready to die. He's suicidal. That is a very different Elijah than the Elijah that just a day or so before was standing up for the Lord in a very courageous way. He's, he's suicidal. And he says, take my life away from me. Now, this is where Elijah needs to go back to his experiences that he's had before this great stand to remember. Remember what the lesson was from the ravens that we, we kind of phrased it this way, that the Lord is able to hide and provide for his people. Elijah should have remembered back and gone back into that tool bag and said, you know what? I, I am afraid. But this is not the first time I've been afraid. I was afraid the first time that I went to Ahab and I told him that by my word, it's not going to rain 
on your land and it's a, a, you know, a span of however, uh, three and a half years or so that it didn't rain and he stands up before the king and he basically says, I'm the one or my God through me is the one that is going to call the shots here. And I think there's a moment where he's a little fearful and he runs and he gets out into the wilderness and he doesn't have a sack full of groceries. He doesn't have a convenience store in every corner. <clears throat> he has nothing. And he realizes that the Lord has a way of hiding and providing for his children. But he's forgotten that. He's forgotten that even in this wilderness where I'm running for my life, he feels alone. He doesn't run out into the wilderness and say, yeah, I'm out here alone and I'm by myself, but I know the Lord is with me. He just says, I'm ready to die. But here's the problem. Elijah is not in the right frame of mind to die. You hear people talk about dying grace have you ever heard people talk about that dying grace i was listening to a sermon by a preacher that he was preaching a long time ago and it was uh he was telling the account of a friend of his that uh had gone to one of uh his friends who was on his deathbed and and he was talking to that friend and 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 he said the, the man that was dying just had such a uh just a sense of peace and he was just ready to go home. And, and I, I remember one writer wrote, a man that, that, that has placed his hope in another world will soon have enough of this one. And I like the way that person said that. And so this man that's dying just seems to be happy. He seems to be at peace. He seems ready to go see his Savior. And the friend that went to visit him, uh, he talked to the man. He said, I, I just do not understand how you can be that way. Now, both are both men are godly men. And if I'm not mistaken, but they were both preachers and they're godly men. He says, I just I don't I, I want to feel the way you feel about dying. I want to feel that. But the, he told the brother that was dying, he said, I just don't feel that way. I do not feel like I've got a dying grace right now. And the, and the brother that was dying told him, he said, you don't have a dying grace right now because you don't need a dying grace right now. And that kind of resonated with me. I thought the Lord is so faithful that he measures out grace to his children at the times that they need it. And that's something that I pray for in the moments that I'm, that I'm uh, at some point, if the Lord tarries, that I die, that the Lord will measure that out to us all to have some sort of grace, a special connection with our Savior in the moments that we're going to die where there is no fear and this world grows dim and we're looking for that, uh, that other country that the Lord has promised us. Elijah's not there. Elijah does not have a dying grace. He's not in the right frame of mind to die. And so he lays down and he goes to sleep. <clears throat> and this is interesting to me, just if you put the human aspect to this, how we think. It says, he lay and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, arise and eat. So imagine this. If you pray that the Lord will kill you and you lay down and go to sleep and then you're you are uh, awakened by an angel. What's the first thing you would think? Hey, I'm in heaven. He answered my prayer. I want to die. I, I prayed to die. I fell asleep. And I woke up and by jingoes, there's an angel. But he quickly realizes that the Lord has not answered that prayer, but the Lord is still faithful that he is still hiding and providing for Elijah. The angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. Now that's something that's, that's interesting to me. If I woke up, if I was awakened by an angel, 
I don't think I would go back to sleep. I mean, really. But I think that shows you the level of exhaustion and fatigue that Elijah has. Definitely, definitely because he was traveling great distances. But I think every one of us would agree that mental fatigue far outweighs physical fatigue. Have you ever just got tired of thinking about something? Like, and I've said this to you before, sometimes the days that I am the most physically tired are the days that I've just had a lot on my mind. Compared to a day that I'm out doing physical labor with a free, joyful mind. You go out, maybe you build a fence and you're whistling and singing and you just feel a sense of freedom and you build that fence all day and you come in and you're, you're tired but I'm not near as tired doing that as if I've just sat there with anguish of mind all day long. And I think not only is he physically fatigued, he's, he's uh, had a 24-hour death warrant placed on his head, uh, and he's had all this display of this great competition with King Ahab. He's exhausted, so exhausted that he can go back to sleep after an angel woke him up. <clears throat> And it says, and the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. That's one reason I think Elijah had a destination in mind. And the Lord knew what the destination was. And I think the Lord was pleased with what the destination was. And he sent his angel to sustain him in this time. And notice this, it says, arise and eat for the journey is too great for thee. Now, <clears throat> What you'll find here is the place that Elijah is going is a place called Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai that you'll read about in the book of Exodus, where Moses went up into, he received the law, uh, he had an encounter with the Lord. And do you remember on that mount that the Lord, uh, that, that uh, Moses says, you know, I want to see your glory? And the Lord says, no man can look upon my face. So he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock or basically a cave. And he says, I'm going to pass by you and you cannot see the front of me. You cannot see my face. But as I pass by and I hide you in that cave, you can see me as I leave. Now, that is a special thing for the Hebrew people. That's a special, I mean, we, we, look, we'll get in our cars and we'll go, we want to go see the Capitol and we want to go see Washington, D.C. We want to go see the Washington Monument. We want to go see the, all these historical places that are special to us as Americans because they've had a, those places, in those places, some events happened that had huge impacts on us as a country, right? And that's great. That's okay. You want to go see where the Constitution was signed. Why? Because that was a special place that had a big impact on us as Americans. Don't you know that Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb was a special place to these people? Hey, that's the place that Moses went to and saw God in a way that he had never seen him before. That's a place he went to that he had such an encounter with God that he was this close to looking on the face of God, but God in his mercy said, you can't do that or you'll die. I'm going to hide you and I'm just going to let you get a glimpse of me. Look, that's a hundred times, a million times better than going to see where the Constitution of the United States was written. 
for these people. And I think Elijah, this is, this is a little bit of my own thoughts, but it seems as the way it's laid out, I think Elijah, when he left Jezreel, which is where Ahab and Jezebel ruled, when he left there and he runs to Beersheba and then a safe place, and then he leaves out of there and goes into the wilderness, I think from the moment he left Jezreel, he says, I have got to get to the place where God, a place where God can be the most real to me because I'm sinking fast. I think Elijah knew that. And he said, I don't know why. There's other places I could go, but I just feel like I need to get to Mount Sinai. That's what I think. But it's a long way. <clears throat> it's 40 days and 40 nights from where he's at when the angel comes to him and meets him and sustains him with some food. Now, what's the lesson there? That's a very unlikely messenger, is it not? It's, it's unlikely that, uh, that you're going to go out into the wilderness and an angel's going to come and feed you. But I also think it's interesting that that's not his first encounter with something like that. Remember when he goes into the wilderness um, and he's hiding from Ahab in the very beginning, and, and I believe it's in 1 Kings, the 17th chapter, that the Lord sustains him with the least likely person to sustain him, and that's a widow who's about to starve to death with her son. That's the least likely person you think that would sustain you. You thought the Lord would have said, all right, Elijah, turn here, take a right, go left, go by that tree, go over this hill, and over there is a very wealthy family. They've got food aplenty. They're going to sustain you. But the lesson that Elijah learned from the widow is that the Lord, when you think everything is depleted, the Lord can continue to multiply. And notice what the angel tells him here. He says, arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. It's 40 days and 40 nights. Now, why did he say that? It says in verse 8, and he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat, that food, 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, Sinai. The Bible does not say that he had meals along. He said that meal took him and strengthened him for 40, a 40 day journey. Do you think the Lord is able to take the smallest of things and keep them from being depleted? If the Lord can take a, 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 a little bit of oil and a little bit of a meal and continue to, uh, to increase those where day after day after day, one day's ration, he made it last a long, long time. One meal took Elijah 40 days. Now listen, we eat a meal for us. If you eat breakfast this morning and you hadn't eaten by 2 or 3 o'clock this afternoon, your stomach starts growling, your energy gets low, maybe your sugar gets low, your body begins to adjust to the lack of food, and you start hunting something to eat. But, and Elijah is no different than us other than the fact that the Lord said, I can make something that looks like it's about to deplete just continue to sustain you. Remember the widow, Elijah? I'm fixing to do that with this meal. And it says, he went in the strength of that meat that the angel gave him 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Now, 
It says, He came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Now, here's a man that's lost, exhausted, and he's searching for God. And I think in my own mind that he's going to Sinai because he's looking for the Lord and he needs the Lord. And maybe he even goes into this cave thinking maybe this is the cave that Moses went in when the Lord passed by. And I don't know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But in that cave, the Lord asked him a question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Where's the, where's the bold Elijah that, that was standing up for me just, you know, a couple month or two ago? Where, where is that Elijah at? What, what are you doing here? And then we begin to see in verse 10 the root of Elijah's problem and what's going on in his mind. Now, I think it's also worth noting this. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Let's look at verse 10. Here's the root of Elijah's problem. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, very uh, very on fire, very excited. I, and he says, to be jealous of the Lord is, is, is to say, it angers me, God, when I see your people giving your honor and your worship to something else. And it ought to bother us too. It ought to bother us a little bit when we see people spending Sunday after Sunday after Sunday giving that time to something else. That ought to bother us a little bit. If you're jealous, that's what it means to be jealous uh, for, for the Lord God. It's, 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 uh, I'll give you a few Little League examples later, but it's kind of like Little League. Your son works hard. Brother Cole can tell you, but he knows when your son works hard and, and, and you think that, that and you know that he's the best player for this particular position, but he doesn't get to play that position because somebody else has got, you know, their son's on the team and their son's a coach and they get to play the position. What are you? You're jealous for, for, for that, for your child because they've earned it. They deserve it. They want to be there. That belongs to them. That's a human aspect of it. Elijah's saying, listen, I have seen time and time again, man, your people give your glory to another. And he says, I've been jealous for you over that. He says, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This makes me think, that whatever acknowledgement that the people of Israel gave after that great showdown that the, we'll, we'll say the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God, whatever declaration and repentance that they gave at that moment did not last very long. Otherwise, it would have read something like this that he probably wouldn't have run to start with. But he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with a sword. But they all repented in one accord, and they said, the Lord, he is God, and they've turned away from the prophets of Baal, and everything's much better. But he doesn't say that. He does not even acknowledge that great competition and how Israel responded to it. You know what that makes me think? That, it didn't, that, that zeal and that fire is no different 
than the parable of the sower that you read about in Matthew the 13th chapter that people will acknowledge Lord, the Lord, but when persecution comes, it fades quickly. Now, don't you know if Jezebel, because remember Jezebel, when they're looking for Elijah on this side of the great competition, don't you remember that she was killing the prophets of God? She was killing the prophets of God. Now Jezebel's put a death warrant uh, on the prophet Elijah. Do you think that she just quit putting pressure on all the Israelites that were wanting to declare that the Lord is God? No, I guarantee you she started slaying them and pressuring them. And all of a sudden the heat that she was putting on them, apparently they turned around and went right back the way they came and quit acknowledging the Lord. Otherwise, Elijah wouldn't have felt this way. And he says, and you know, notice he's right on four out of five points. He's right on four out of the five of them. Yeah, they've forsaken the covenant. They've thrown down the altars. They've slain the prophets. And they seek my life to take it away. And I, even I, only am left. He's got 80% of it right. <clears throat> and they find the, you find the root of his problem right here. And here's the root of the problem. And here's what you will suffer with and deal with if you find yourself taking a stand. You will feel like, number one, you're alone. And number two, you will feel like your labors for the Lord have been in vain. Now, I can tell you as a preacher, and I don't know of any preacher that would probably tell you any different, that one of the things that afflicts a preacher is to feel like your efforts are in vain, that they're not making any impact for the kingdom, and that sometimes that you feel alone in that. And I think that's where Elijah can be, or Elijah is at this moment. He says, Lord, I'm here because... I, this great thing that we've done, uh, you have done through me, where the fire came down. and cons I mean, as awesome as that was, Lord, they've still turned back against you. Jezebel put some heat on them, and they still won't repent. They still won't follow you in faithfulness, Lord. And what am I doing here? Why am I here, Lord, if, if, if I cannot have any more of an impact on these people than I've had? And now, not only uh, is, uh, are they going back, now they seek my life notice he doesn't say she seeks my life they seek my life now you remember back in the old testament when the hebrews were, were growing and as they were uh, slaves to the nation of uh, egypt and they were growing in number and what did the egyptians say they said you know what if these hebrews if somebody ever attacks us and the hebrews decide to join with them we're done and so they come up with this and say, listen, we've just got to work them harder. We've got to wear them out. We've got to make them so exhausted that they wouldn't have the energy to fight. And so they begin to uh, afflict them in that way for their benefit. Don't you know that it's very likely that Jezebel said, I'm going to kill a prophet a day. I'm going to kill an Israel a day or maybe a dozen a day until somebody brings me the head of Elijah. Because he says, it's not she seeking my life. It's they're seeking my life. Maybe she did something like that. And so he says, I'm alone and my labor is in vain. And being alone and taking a stand is probably worse than having somebody seek after your life. We do not like to feel alone. I, uh, <clears throat> going back to Little League, I had an a instance uh, not too long ago where <clears throat> I helped coach both of my boys' teams, and we had a, a, a there, there's one particular guy that helps a little bit, and he's just, he's just mean. 
And I mean, he just, look, I'm all about instructing and teaching. And there's a time, you know, you got to be a little firm with somebody to, to pull their potential out of them. But he's just mean. I mean, he is barking all the time at these kids. And finally, I said, I said, hey, man, you got to relax. You know, you have got to leave these kids alone a little bit and just let them catch their breath and play some ball and just quit fussing at them all the time. And it wasn't long after that, I felt real alone. I was like, man, you know, this is, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should have left him alone. And you know, it wasn't long after that, this coach came up and said, man, I'm so glad you said that. I've been, I've been so sick and tired of that. And then another coach comes in, nobody knows him, so don't try to figure him out. Another coach comes up and says, man, I'm so glad. I get a text, hey man, I'm so glad that you said that. Well, you know what? I went from feeling like, I don't know if I should have said that to, hey, I'm kind of glad I said that. Because I wasn't alone anymore. I had people on my side willing to stand by me and say, hey, yeah, he was out of line. I'm glad you said something. Elijah doesn't have that. Elijah has done something one million gazillion times harder than what I did. And he has nobody. And so the Lord says to him, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. Now, if you're Elijah, and maybe you've gone to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai to hopefully find the Lord, and maybe you're, hope, you're hoping to have some sort of experience like Moses did because you are lonely and exhausted and depleted, and the Lord is trying to show you, even though you're depleted, I can continue to sustain and strengthen you. And if you're wanting to have that experience that Moses had to rejuvenate you, and then all of a sudden the Lord says, all right, go, go forth and stand upon the mount. If I was Elijah, I'd be like, hey, man, this is going to work. This is going to work. I'm going to get to see the Lord like Moses saw the Lord. He's going he's gonna to pass by me, and, and I'm not going to get to look on his face, but I'm going to I'm get to see the Lord in some special way, and he's going to pull me out of this pit. And the Lord says, go stand on the mount. And he said, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong... Now, remember, Elijah right now is in a cave. And as he sits in that cave, all he says is, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. It says, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And Elijah obviously knows these things because he never comes out of the cave. Or maybe he's afraid. Maybe he's afraid for what he would see. Maybe he's afraid that there's going to be some sort of rebuke from the Lord. We don't know. But it says, and after the earthquake, there was a, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. It says, and after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. Now, think about that for just a second. There's so, it, it's, to me, it's like this. Sometimes it's the most tender mercies of God that draw God's people out. We ought to remember that. It's not always the big, flashy things that we see that the Lord is in. Sometimes it's the very smallest of things that really resonate with God's people. And I would, I would throw this out there too. 
how big and flashy a, a worship service is doesn't mean the Lord's in it. Sometimes the Lord is in the smallest, most simple things. And I think the Spirit of God inside of us recognizes when the Lord is in something or when He is not. Because Elijah didn't jump up and run out of the cave when the wind came through or when the fire came through or when the earthquake, earthquake came through. But when it was that still small voice, Elijah heard that something in his heart said, the Lord is here. And probably knowing what the a situation was with Moses where the Lord said, you can't look on my face. Elijah is so confident that the Lord is in it that he takes his mantle or his clothes and wraps it around his head to cover his face so he won't see the Lord and he goes out of the cave. It was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, the same thing he's already said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What's, what frame of mind are you in? What is going through your head that has brought you here? What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very, same thing. Same thing he's already told him. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And remember, he's already asked the Lord to kill him. And that's not uncommon for the prophets of God when they are uh, when they're dealing with a message from the Lord and relaying it out to people and, and, and that whole mechanism there. That's not uncommon because Jonah said the same thing when Jonah gets a message from the Lord. He he flees. He goes to Tarshish and, and we have the situation with the well. Then he turns and repents and goes back to Nineveh. He preaches in Nineveh and they repent. And then Elijah comes back and pouts about them repenting and says, Lord, would you just kill me? Just take me, Lord. Now, I'm not saying that that makes sense or that's even logical, but there's something about the prophets of God speaking to the people. And sometimes when the people's repentance bring them great joy, instead of it, uh, it, it bringing the prophet joy, it makes him suicidal. And Elijah's point, when they, when, they, uh, when they don't repent, it makes him suicidal. It's a tricky business. Moses was the same way. Moses said, Lord, I can't bear this. Just kill me. And so he says, what are you doing here? And he tells them all those different types of things. <clears throat> and he tells them again, Lord, my labor's in vain. I'm alone. I got a target on my back and they're trying to kill me. And this is what the Lord says to him. The Lord said, go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel Mahola, shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. And he says, Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Now, so what Elijah's dealing with here is I'm alone. I've taken a stand for you, Lord, and it's brought me nothing but heartache. 
and trouble. I do not feel close to you anymore. I don't feel your presence like I did when I was taking that stand. I'm afraid and I'm alone and I want to die. Bad spot to be in. And what the Lord shows him, he's like, Elijah, you're not alone. Just because you don't see all the people that are having the same fire burning in you, just because you don't see them or know their names does not mean they don't exist. You are not alone. And one of the, one of the first things he tells them is, says, listen, I think one of the things that Elijah deals with is this, and, and, and I, can, I can relate to this sometimes. Our God is a merciful God. But there's also times in this life in this life, that the long-suffering of the Lord runs out. And what do I mean by that? You read through the Bible. There comes point, uh, points of time throughout Israel's history where the Lord says, I have called out to you all day long, meaning a long period of time, and you have been stiff-necked and rejected me and gone and followed the false gods of this world. I have stretched out my arm to you. I have called out to you not to be your Savior in eternity, understand, but to be your God and your God here on this earth. And you've rejected me because of that. And I'm just going to step back and I'm going to take the blessings that I have for you with me and I'm just going to let sin pour in on you and ravage you until you realize that walking with me is the only way a child of God should walk. That's the long suffering of God coming to an end. Read, read through the Old Testament. And I think sometimes the prophets, when they preached and they preached and they preached and they preached and they never saw fruit, they never saw repentance, I think there is a part of them that says, Lord, why don't you do something with this wicked, gainsaying, rebellious people of yours? We see the prophets struggle with that. And the condition that Israel is, is in, uh, the Lord is fixing to tell Elijah, don't fret about that, Elijah. I understand what you're saying. And I know that, that, that uh, you know, when it's just a long-term, sustained state of rebellion, I know that weighs on you, Elijah. But don't forget, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Don't forget that I will have my glory and I will be a God of judgment. Now listen, I'm not talking about an eternity here. I'm talking about here and now. And this is what he says. Listen, these people that have rejected me and, and they have seen such a great... And, and, it, and, that, and the famine wasn't enough. They've rejected me. I sent a, a drought, a famine, and people were starving to death. That didn't get them to repent. I did this great miracle in front of them. They, they still turned back away from me. Elijah, I'll deal with them. I'll deal with the stiff-necked people. And he says, listen, I'm going to deal with them in this way. That I'm going to anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And I'm going to anoint Jehu to be the king over Israel. Hazael, we'll find out here in just a second. Hazael is going to deal with Israel. Jehu is going to deal with Ahab and all his people. Because if you notice over... In 2 Kings, the 8th chapter, it says, Elisha, verse 7, Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come hither. And the king said unto Hazael, 
one of his servants, take a present in thine hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Hazael went to meet him. Now remember, this is the man that Elijah is going to appoint king over Syria. So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, even of the, every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels burden, and came and he stands before the king. And Hazael says, on behalf of the king, I'm asking, will he recover from the disease he has? And this is Elisha now, not Elijah. This is Elisha following up on what Elijah, the Lord told Elijah to do. And Elisha says, go unto him and, go unto, and say unto him, thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit the Lord has showed me that thou that he shall surely die. Now what he's saying is, yes, you may recover, but something's going to get you, and it's not going to be this disease. You're going to die, Ben Hadad. You're, you're going to die, but it may or may not be from this disease. And Elisha said unto him, Go and say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance. This is Elijah. Elisha. Elisha tells him, All right, Hazael. Go tell the king this. And then it says, Elisha settled his countenance steadfastly. You know what that means? He was trying not to cry. He settled it. You ever, you ever just felt the emotions building up? You get kind of tight-lipped and you just get a stern face and you're just trying to hold back the tears. He settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. He couldn't hold it in. And Hazael said, Why weepeth, my Lord? And he said, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel as a judgment for not repenting and turning and following the Lord. He says, I know the evil that you're going to do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds will thou set on fire, and their young men will thou slay with the sword, and will dash their children and rip up their women with child. And Hazael said, but what is thy servant a dog? It seems like such a humble man. But what is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elijah answer, Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master, little, little Mr. Humble, right? Who said to him, what, what, did, what said Elisha to thee? And he answered and said, He told me that thou shalt, should surely recover. Well, that's not what he said. Maybe he's not quite Mr. Humble. And it came to pass on the morrow the next day that he, meaning Hazael, took a thick cloth, dipped it in water, spread it over his face so that he died, and Hazael reigned in his stead. When the Lord says something's coming to pass, it's coming to pass. And so Hazael gets this word from Elisha, that he's going to be king. Well, what's the quickest way for him to be king? I'm going to go ahead and kill the king that's here now. And so Hazael kills the king and goes and he, and remember I said the Lord just steps back and, let, and sin pours in. He doesn't direct it to pour in. He just steps back and sin does what it does. And the Lord stepped back and Hazael comes in and wreaks havoc on Israel as a judgment from the Lord. Now, what about Jehu? And Jehu in, in the next chapter it says this. You don't have to flip over there for the sake of time. It says that Jehu's anointed. Uh, Elisha goes and anoints Jehu, the king over Israel. And he tells him this. Thou shalt smite the house of Ahab, thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. 
For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab, and I will cut off from Ahab. And he goes on and says, The dogs shall eat Jezebel and the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And if you read on in the Bible, you find that's exactly what happens. That Jezebel is killed, thrown from the window, and they come back a little bit later to find her, and there's nothing left of her but a few bones. That the dogs have eaten her and strewn her all over the city. Now, let me finish up here. And then he goes on and he says, not only will I have Hazael, uh, there's also Jehu, but most importantly, there's a man called Elisha. That you think you're alone. Listen here, Elijah, you're not alone. There's 7,000. Now, 7,000 is a small percentage compared to uh, the number of people that were in Israel. But listen, if I'm standing alone and you can bring me 7,000, I'm thankful for those 7,000. And Elijah is clueless of these. He's so clueless, he's saying, kill me, Lord, kill me, I'm alone. You're not alone, Elijah. There's 7,000, and not only are you not alone, here is a man whose name is almost exactly like yours. How, how is that for coincidence, Elijah? Elisha, that every preacher that's ever preached on Elijah and Elisha has gotten them mixed up. They're so close. He says, he's coming, his name is Elisha, and he is going to preach and carry on the message and the kingdom in your stead. And we find on with, later on with, uh, with Elijah that he and Elisha are there. And uh, after so many times that Elijah begged for death, the Lord was so merciful that he allowed him to be translated into heaven and not even see death. With Eli Elisha standing there watching it and receiving a double portion of of the honor that Elijah had, and Elisha would go on and do great things for great things for the Lord. Now, let me close it out with this. I'll probably I might talk about it some next week, but I want to try to finish it with this. You may experience something exactly like Elijah did. It may not be fire from heaven that consumes up a drenched, soaked altar. But it may be in school, young people. It may be in your workplace. It may be in your family. It may be in any number of places that you find yourself having to take a stand and saying, the Lord is God and it is His standards that I will abide by. Now, we most recently, what have we seen? Uh, we've seen... Um, some baseball, major league baseball players, that their team wanted to celebrate uh, Pride Month, which I, that's interesting to me. You know, best I can tell when I read the Bible, pride's a sin. If I'm going, if I'm going to, you know, if we're talking about homosexuality and and they have a Pride Month, they label it over one of the sins that the Lord says He hates. If I had something I was standing for that was good, I wouldn't call it pride. Maybe humble month would be better. But Major League Baseball players whose team says we're going to celebrate Pride Month and we're going to acknowledge it with different uniforms, with things on them that acknowledge this sinful lifestyle according to God's Word. And baseball players have to make a decision. What am I going to do? And the ones that say, I'm not going to take a stand, I mean, I'm not going to do that, 
I serve the one and only true living God and His standards are the ones that I walk by and I am not doing it. I'm not going out to kill them. I'm not marching at them with torches and stakes to destroy them. I'll help them if I can, but I will not support that or do something that acknowledges it, that it is right and okay in the sight of God. All right, well, now all of a sudden you've got an Elijah situation. And what happens? The Jezebels come out of the woodwork, do they not? And they want to say, oh, so-and-so for this particular team. I, I saw one just last week. The Texas Rangers are the only major league team that does not acknowledge or have some sort of, of, of uh, pride night. They do nothing to acknowledge that particular lifestyle. Now, again, they're not saying anything against it. They're just not acknowledging it with a specific pride night at their stadiums. And now they're all over the news. All the Texas Rangers, they're bigots. Texas Rangers, blah, 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 blah. That's the Jezebels coming out of the woodwork. Well, what are you going to do when that happens? Chances are the powers of darkness are going to come to you, whether, it's, whether you're a major league team or whether you're a young girl in her junior high class that says, I know everybody's wearing that, but I refuse to wear it. Or whether you're a young man on a football team that says, I realize everybody looks at that, but I'm not going to look at it. Well, then you become Elijah all of a sudden, and you watch and see, you will feel as high as a kite during that stand. And the next day, you're going to feel as low as you can possibly go and probably regretting ever saying anything about it. And you will feel alone, and you'll want to crawl under a rock. I can tell you that because I've been there. Don't forget the things that we've talked about. Don't forget, read back through what the Lord did with Elijah. And if nothing else, remember this, that he said, I've got 7,000. That's a lot of people that, are, that have the same heart and same courage that you've got, Elijah. You just don't know where they are. One of the things I tell my kids, I said, listen, if you're on the other side of the country, and you are standing for what is true and right. You need to know for a certainty, although I am thousands of miles away, that your mother and I are standing with you, even though we're not there with you in, in presence. If I am dead and gone, and you are at some point in your life where you've got to take a stand for what is true and right, that I pray that God raises up people to stand there with you. And if you don't see them or know their name or recognize their face, please trust in the Lord that He is faithful and there are people that have not bowed a knee to the things that you're standing up against. Folks, our kids need to hear that. They need to know when they're in that locker room or they're doing this and all these things are offered to them. Like, my goodness, I may be standing alone here, but I know mom and daddy are standing down the road and they're standing as firm and as strong with me as anybody could be. It'll make it easier on them. Much easier on them. If you had not told your kids that, tell them that. Now, I'm out of time and I'm really out of things to say, so that's perfect. <clears throat> Go through and read these things over again and look how the Lord dealt with Elijah before the stand, how he dealt with him in the stand, and how he dealt with him after the stand. And trust this, the Lord knows what he's doing. You may not know what he's doing and you may not have a clue, but you know, why don't we try walking by faith and not by sight for a while?
You might find that you don't have quite as many burdens on you and as many worries on your mind. 